But we're going to continue on in our series through Romans. As we kind of get started, I, you know, I love this time of year. The kind of spring is, you know, starting to be on the horizon. It's coming right around the corner. The days are getting longer. I like more daylight during the day. And I also am a basketball fan, so I appreciate March Madness even though I haven't followed college basketball as much this year as maybe I have in the past. But um, I don't know if some of you may have seen the, the game on Friday night, the one seed versus the 16th seed, the University of Virginia, who is the top team in the tournament, playing the 16th seeded team in their region, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So it kind of has a community college kind of feel playing this big D1 school. It's kind of a David Goliath matchup. And as most of you probably know, um, unless you don't follow basketball and don't care, but I'll be done soon. A pretty big deal happened. The, the 16th seeded team beat the first place. That's never, ever happened before in the tournament. And they didn't just beat them. They beat them by 20 points, destroyed them. And uh, really, the, the point I'm getting at is I saw the post-game news conference for the coach of the, the losing team, the University of Virginia. Coach Bennett is, I think, his name. And I'm not real familiar with that program. But I was really impressed with what he had to say. Um, and it's just a very... Very good answer. I mean, here's a coach that many of them were expecting this team to win the national championship. And most, a lot of you probably, I know some of you at least, had them uh, winning winning on your bracket. And they messed up all our brackets. But but that's okay because it gave this opportunity for this coach to to really impress me um, by by how he lost and how he communicated that. He didn't make any excuses. He, He didn't blame the refs. He didn't blame his players. He didn't say, well, they just, you know, our shots didn't fall in. I mean, he really took kind of responsibility, accountability, ownership for, for what happened, and just really, you know, basically said there was some, probably some calls during the game, some subs, and, and different things I could, could have done um, at different points in the game, and basically kind of said, you know, hey, this is our fault, our fault. The other team played well. He didn't make any excuses. So as we get into our passage today in the book of Romans, it's, it's a pretty, pretty heavy passage. A lot, a lot of things come, in, come into play in it. But really the, the crux of it, Paul, or the apostle who's writing this, um, is saying that there really is no excuse for the unbelief of Israel. No excuse for Israel's unbelief. You know, we all like to make excuses. It's just kind of inherent, I think, especially just in our sinful nature. We want to shift blame and those sorts of things. But here, Paul is saying, really in the context of these, this book and this letter that he's writing, is that Israel, their unbelief, their rejection of God is only because of them. That they are the ones to blame. And, and as we begin to get into our passage, I do want to set some context because this, you know, this letter that we're in each week over the last several months, um, it's kind of like you know, watching, watching a movie and then coming, diving real deep into the plot and, and, and the context of everything and then come back up for air and we got to get back down. And especially in these three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, which we're kind of right in the middle of today, it, it can be kind of confusing just jumping in without knowing exactly what Paul, what he's been talking about, what he's going to talk about, and what is really his main goal is. So in these three, you know, in the book of Romans, which is really a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, made up of Jews, the people of God, and made up of Gentiles, made up of both, both groups that had turned to Christ and become Christians, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. He started off by, by saying, okay, you guys, humanity was in trouble. Humanity was in trouble. You remember Romans 1 and 2, the sin that we found ourselves in as humanity, 
we had a problem. And so then he starts to talk about in the next few chapters, the solution to that problem shows us the the good news of Jesus, Jesus coming to to pay the price for our sin, to connect us, be able to connect us back to God. And then in Romans 8, which we've covered a couple weeks ago, um, over a series of three weeks, we, we saw just a lot of different promises that we, that those of us who are believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, we get to experience. We get to experience no condemnation for our sin. We are guiltless before God because of what Jesus did. We, we've been adopted into his family. We're now children of God. These just amazing blessings. If God is for us, who can be against us? If you remember that language that Paul uses, basically saying it doesn't matter who, who comes against you if God is on your side and how we can never be separated from the love of God. Death won't separate us. Nothing in this life will do that. And so he, he starts to do these promises, and then, and then Paul jumps into chapter 9 and starts to really, it's kind of a segue, but basically is explaining all, all of this stuff is true, but I know many of my readers are wondering, then why isn't Israel, like what, what's up with Israel? This is God's chosen people. Why are they all like, anti-God, they're wanting to crucify Jesus when he was on the earth. Like, what, what's the deal? What, has, has the word of God failed? Are God's promises still true? And there's this kind of tension hanging in the air that he addresses in these three chapters, and we'll, we'll address a little bit today. So that's kind of where we're at. And what I want to do before we go through our outline and go through the verses is to really let you know what basically I want to accomplish three things in the midst of uh, it may be a little bit like me shooting a fire hose at you with some of all of Paul's stuff and hopefully you don't it doesn't feel like a fire hose I hope but three things I want us to, to really accomplish first to be reminded about God's faithfulness to his promises Paul is going to refer back to many many things that God said hundreds of years before he's writing these words and and we are reminded of his promises there and I hope that we're reminded of his faithfulness today also I want to be want us to be challenged, uh, to have a sense of urgency about the gospel, about sharing the gospel specifically. We'll see that in Paul's writings today. And then also to have a renewed appreciation for the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. I know for some of us, the Old Testament seems a little bit scarier than the New Testament in a sense. It's just a little harder to, to maybe find out some of the applications and, and, and understand the whole context of the stories. But I want us to see just from Paul's example and his use of the Old Testament, how they really are so interconnected and how they really, um, how the Old Testament points towards Christ and um, sheds light on the gospel passage. I'm going to read all 18 verses at once and then we'll unpack them verse by verse. So buckle up. <laughs> We'll start in verse 13, which we covered last week. It says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he launches into our passage today by asking a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. 
as we continue on and finish up chapter 10, he says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, that there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Whew, all right. So that, there's a lot in there. And it, it kind of seems like Paul is, is jumping all over the place and you don't know if it's, it's Moses, you see David, you see Isaiah. It's kind of all scattered a little bit at first glance. And you know, if, if you come across this reading in your you know, morning devotional reading, it's probably gonna probably gonna eat you up, eat your lunch, you know. Um, so, so I think this is a passage that is really good for us to kind of sift through. You really kind of need a good study Bible to understand, you know. Okay, this seems like a quotation. So, what what is he referring back to? And and that's what I hope to kind of at least in a kind of brief form in half an hour to this morning look look through this um, and sift through it a little bit. All right. But as we do that, and because there is so much Old Testament, let me show you kind of by illustration. I know all of you have really good eyes and can see that. Um, but all of the blue there is Old Testament quotations from what we just read. So over half, I mean about half, of these 18 verses are all Paul using the Old Testament, this, the Hebrew scripture that he had at that point. So I think it's just important for us to see that, and really these three chapters that I keep referring back to, 9, 10, and 11, um, they're just packed with Old Testament references as he's talking about this, this idea of why Israel is still unbelieving. And so I think uh, before we dive into the outline, I think a couple quick things about different ways that Paul uses the Old Testament in his writings. The first thing is that he really is pointing the reader back to the context of the quote that he uses, not just that specific quote to prove a point. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, back then they didn't have the little verse reference numbers that we have that are very helpful for us today so that we can look back. And, you know, you, some of you may have a cross-reference Bible that has all those little letters real small by the things that basically you can kind of go from there to look at another part of your page to see where in the Old Testament this verse is coming from and how it all connects. Paul didn't have that. So when he's referring back to some of the, you know, basically saying some of these quotes, he's really speaking about the whole context of what, what he's, uh, of what it was originally talking about. So that's one thing for us to, to just be mindful of as we, as we go through um, and not fall into that trap of just saying, okay, it looks like he said Isaiah 65.2. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 65.2. Okay, well, okay. I, I don't know why exactly he used that, but okay, we'll just keep on going. Like he, You have to read and kind of understand that whole chapter and, and the verses before and after. The second way that Paul uses the Old Testament especially in the book of Romans, is, is he wants to draw his reader into an argument or to, into kind of his, the case that he's making 
by using in a way that really his own words could never do. He wants to draw them in, draw them in even emotionally to some extent. Um, you know, we, we, we do this in everyday life today just as a modern day example. I know some of you probably have friends that are always quoting lines from movies or TV shows and expect you to understand what, what they're talking about and, you know, the whole context around it. I, I know probably some of you um, have Seinfeld friends um, that are big fans of that, that TV show. And um, I know that there's, I, I never really watched it, so every time somebody says something, oh, yeah, you remember that line where, you know, Jerry and was with George and he talked to Kramer and all this stuff? I'm like, nope, sorry, I, I'm just lost. And I think that's a lot of, a lot of us read passages that are quoting the Old Testament and stuff, like, we have no reference points, so we're like, yeah, I got nothing, nothing. I'm sure it was funny, you know, and, you know, so I, it, I want us to, but if, if somebody, if you're sharing it with somebody that did, like, has, has seen the episode and it re- somehow, you know, somehow everything in life can relate to a Seinfeld episode I've, I've found, um, but you, you could just laugh with that person and watch it on YouTube, rewatch it and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think this is what, you know, Paul, his first century readers are tracking with him. Most, you know, the most of them are very familiar with these passages. So they're like, oh yeah, wow, hmm, interesting. Like, I remember that, that sort of thing. And, you know, for us, it's just, it's just harder to put ourselves um, in that place. But I think it's, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to do that, especially with all of the resources that we have today at our fingertips with technology and everything. So with those things in mind, with those kind of different ways, he obviously, there's other ways that he does it, but we don't have time to go into those. Um, let's jump into verse 14 and 15, where we started, and, and look at really this process that leads to salvation. The process that leads to salvation. We'll reread the verses. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom, I mess it up every time. I'm going to try it again. I was like, oh, fifth time I read it, I'm going to get it. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? All right, so we see here kind of a step-by-step process of how someone becomes saved, at least from a, a human perspective, at least from kind of our perspective. Obviously, all of these steps that we'll go through um, have a, the Holy Spirit and God is working in the people and, and in, through the whole situation. But what we see here is really kind of through these four questions, five steps, that basically the process that leads to salvation it starts with someone being sent, all right? So we see a sending, then a preaching, then a hearing, then a believing, and then a calling. If you kind of go walk back through those questions, Paul is basically showing us this. And Paul really believed that this was the only way to be saved. For this process to happen, for a, for a sent preacher to share the good news, for people to hear and respond or believe and call on the Lord. And I think it, it's, uh, you know, this is probably one of the clearest passages where we see kind of this process laid out, this process of evangelism. We talk a lot about evangelism and we talk a, um, a lot about sharing our faith and really this is the process that is happening. You know, this led Paul to live his life the way he did with such relentless passion and urgency to, 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 be, to be the sent one. You know, he was, he was the apostle, the, the sent one of God to, to go share the love and, and share the love of the gospel and the love of God for people to hear and then have a chance to respond. So I think we, we should ask ourselves from this, and just as we kind of think through, okay, how does this apply to us? Do we, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that this is the process first? Um, most of us who, who are saved 
I, I think we probably would say, okay, yeah, that makes, makes sense. Someone's sin. Okay, God sends someone to, to, to preach the gospel and we hear it and we respond and are able to call on the Lord, confess him as our Lord and Savior. You know, but, but as I, I was really convicted this week as far as, um, you know, I, I would say, yeah, of course, I believe it. But does my life really show this? Does my life really reflect this kind of sense of urgency that we talk about and that Paul obviously had? And I'm afraid it doesn't a lot of the time. And, and I think for a lot of us, it probably is that way. I mean, even when I think about my own life and the way I came to be saved, grew up in a Christian home, um, I can see, okay, walk through this process, and my, my parents really were sent by God to be my parents, to, to preach, proclaim the gospel to me. I, I heard it, uh, and then I believed, and have been able to call on God since that moment I was saved. And, and I think many of us, in some way, shape, or form, that, that's the process that, that led us to salvation. So I think for us to, to really just examine our lives to see, well, if this is really the way that this happens, that God sends people, um, I, I think some questions we can ask ourselves is, who, who am I being sent to? Who am I being sent? And then we look at the, the preaching. I'm, am I a preacher? Uh, God hasn't called me to be a preacher. I guess I'm not part of this process. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, that's probably how some of us probably think. But, but this, you know, obviously this word preach, it, it doesn't just mean you have to be a pastor and stand before a group of people on a stage with a little pulpit and, and preach. This is, this is sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, communicating the gospel to someone who doesn't know. And that's the, kind of the most general way to describe this. And this can happen in a lot of different ways, in a variety of ways today. It can be over a cup of coffee at the coffee shop with, with a friend. It can be you know, over a dinner table with your neighbors. It can be in a lot of different ways. We, we're all call, called to participate in this process of being sent to preach, proclaim the good news for people to hear, and then believe and call. So we see that. So I want you to be thinking about who in your life is God sending you to? Who in your life is God sending you to in order for them to have a chance to respond? We continue on in verse 15, the end of it, Paul talks about, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And he's kind of getting into his Old Testament quotes. This is an Isaiah quote that really, in its original context, was about the people of Israel being in captive, and these messengers were coming, coming over the hills, over the mountains, to share with them that they had been delivered from their captivity to the Assyrians. And so Paul is kind of applying that in his current day now to, you know, guys, people are sharing the good news with you and it's, their, their feet are beautiful in a sense because it's, they're carrying them, even though feet obviously aren't very beautiful. Even today when we have nice shoes to cover them up and keep them from getting dirty, which they didn't have back then, um, you know, to, it's, it's a beautiful thing for a messenger to share the good news and that's the point he's trying to get across. And then we, we see in the next few verses we really get to the, the crux of kind of what the title of our, my message today is, is that Israel is left without excuse. Israel is left without excuse because he starts, Paul, we'll, we'll start to bring up this, these arguments, okay? So um, have they heard about it? Have they understood? And we're going to get to those things. So, so we see in verse 16 this, this idea, basically him laying out that not all, not all of Israel has believed. He says, but they not, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And if you remember back, I said 
one of the ways that Paul uses the Old Testament is to just kind of refer back to the context of, of where that quote is found from. And this is from Isaiah 53. Um, this is basically the, the first verse in, in what is known as the, the servant song, the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. And it's a whole chapter about the prophecy of Jesus, how he was pierced for our transgressions and, and you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. And, and there's just the, all these things about Jesus that, that he's really pointing them back to that they should, they, they get. You know, when we read this, we're just kind of like, why didn't Paul just say, you know, not everybody is believed. Like, that would have been a much easier way. But he, there's just so much in this quote that, that he's referring them back to that some of his first, many of his uh, first kind of hearers um, would, would understand. So Paul's drawing them back to this idea. And then in verse 17, he recaps the process like this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Basically, pairs it down to three steps. You have the word of Christ, which, which we can um, basically say is the spoken word about Christ, the spoken message about Christ, which we kind of a lot of times sum up as the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Through hearing that, faith can come. And he sums that up really, really well in, those three ver- in that verse there. All right, so then in the next few verses, we've, we've got some more, more to get through. And we see first that one of the reasons they're left without excuse is that they have heard the gospel. They've had a chance to hear. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to the, all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So this, you see, is a quote from the book of Psalms. So he's re- referencing David now. And Paul, throughout all of these things, he references Isaiah, David, Moses, kind of getting a, a broad kind of sample from the Hebrew scriptures, give, giving us a, and giving his readers a broad sample, not only the law, the prophets, the writings, all these different pieces from the Hebrew scriptures at that point. So what is, Paul, what is David saying in, the, in this verse? Well, the there, their voice has gone, the there is really talking about creation, creation, the heavens, the, the stars, the sun, the moon. He's talking about really this idea of general revelation, which is the idea of how God has generally revealed himself to mankind and how mankind is without excuse, right? Mankind is without excuse to know that there is a God. And Paul talked about that in the beginning of the book of Romans. And then Paul, he uses that, what David's talking about in reference to general revelation, how God has generally revealed himself to this idea of special revelation where God has kind of specifically revealed himself through Jesus, through Jesus, and said, you know, just as everyone should know there is a God from creation, the voice going out to the ends of the earth, their words, how the stars and the, the, the heavens communicate to everyone there is a God, that you, the Israelites have been communicated, that the gospel has gone out to all of them as well. All right, so he uses this analogy kind of form. And then next, he says, okay, they, they've heard it. They've definitely heard it, but... Maybe they haven't understood it. Well, he answers in this next one, they should understand God's plan. They should understand God's plan. And he gives several different reasons, starting in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So right off the bat, he's saying all the way back in Moses' day, which is thousands of years before he's writing this, thousands of years before Jesus came, 
Moses is saying this was God's plan all along. The people of Israel should not have been in the dark about this. They should understand that God's plan was to bring Jesus and then to include the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and so that everyone could come to Jesus. It wasn't just a, a Jewish thing. He wasn't just a Jewish God. He was the God of everyone. And in this gospel through Jesus, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a mystery, although it was to, to many of the Israelites. They should have understood. He's really, in a sense, kind of invoking some jealousy and anger um, and envy in, in Israel, basically saying, this is our God, and he's showing himself to all of the, these, this nation that, you know, basically when it says foolish nation, it's talking about the Gentiles that didn't, they weren't seeking after God, they didn't know God, they just were kind of oblivious to, the, to God. And until now, God has revealed himself to them. And then in verse 20, he kind of echoes this same idea by saying, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, applying this, this concept to, to the Gentiles now that originally was meant for the Jews. God had revealed himself to the Jews who didn't ask for him, and now he's revealing himself to, to the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. So, so there's a lot in these verses, and we don't have time to dive real, real deep, and I know um, there's times I wish I could, but, but we, we keep going, all right? So the next point that, that he brings up here is in verse 21. It's basically that God has been patient in spite of Israel's disobedience. God has been patient in spite of Israel's disobedience. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you, you know that it's a lot about Israel just not being very smart, not being very um, obedient to God and, and not remembering him for what he had, had done for them. We see this in verse 21, really God's posture towards them. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So we see this idea of God as a loving father to his people, holding his hands out, just waiting, waiting for them to come back to him. And, and I think this is a picture of God that, that we can all kind of relate to in some way. You know, it, it, it kind of stands in, in our minds in a little bit of a contradiction or at least an apparent contradiction between what we talked about the last couple weeks and Romans chapter 9, where God is, you know, showing mercy where he wants to show mercy. He hardens those whom he hardens. And this idea of God's sovereignty that's, you know, sometimes hard to swallow, but, but you know, we can't wrap our minds around it completely, but we believe it and, under, you know, and trust God. You know, this idea of that compared to him standing as a father. These two ideas in scripture are taught side by side, and we, we can believe them um, together. Now, I think you know, we can also ask ourselves from this and, and learn, you know, as we're reminded about God's patience for the people of Israel, God has been patient with, with each one of us. And I think we, we should respond to that patience, unlike the people of Israel, where they took advantage of that quite a bit, we should respond to his, his patience, his love for us, his continued um, pursuit of us to, with, with love and obedience back to him. All right, so that kind of finishes up to chapter 10. We're gonna to move to chapter 11. We've seen that God, God has been rejected by his people. It was kind of, Paul's kind of stating the obvious and giving a few different reasons why. Um, but before we get into chapter 11, I wanna share this story with you as we talk a little bit more about basically the state of Israel and just kind of the different things going on. 
the story starts like this. For the last two centuries, a story has been told that really introduces this topic to um, Romans chapter 11. Friedrich the Great, king of Prussia from 1740 to 1786, asked for proof that the Bible is true in a discussion with his court chaplain. Frederick, under the influence of the atheistic French philosopher Voltaire, had become skeptical of Christianity and of the reliability of the Bible. His words to the chaplain supposedly were, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very easy proof. So often when I have asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some large book that I have neither the time nor desire to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the fact simply. Give me proof for the inspiration of the Bible in one word. One word to prove the reliability of the Bible? What would you have said if faced with the same challenge? Love, sin, grace, surely the best one-word defense of the Bible's reliability would be a theological word, something that probed the depth of the intellect and touched the center of the soul. While perhaps equipped to offer a profound term for the king's consideration, the chaplain resorted to what was plain and obvious, something that all the world could see. Your majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request literally, the chaplain replied. I can give you the proof you asked for in one word. Amazed, the king asked, What is this magic word that carries such a weight of proof? He asked. The chaplain answered, Israel. Friedrich the Great of Prussia responded only with silence. Now, whether that, you know, who, who knows if that story is true or not, but I think it does prove a point for us to, to really understand the magnitude and the significance of the nation of Israel. Um, you, you think about, and we don't have time to do a whole history lesson um, of the nation of Israel, but the Bible obviously talks a lot about it in the Old Testament. We see numerous times where, where Israel was, was, you know, from its very beginning with the man Abraham. And God chose Abraham and said, okay, through you I'm going to have a nation that's going to reach out to all the other nations. And, and we see their slavery in Egypt. That happens pretty quick a few hundred years after that. Um, many different captivities. Jerusalem was destroyed, their capital, multiple times. I mean, think even more recent days in the 20th century with the Holocaust and World War II in the 1940s. I mean, really, the, the, Isra- the nation of Israel should not still be around today. Uh, it's, it's really a miracle when you think about it. And, and I think, as that little story or illustration proved, you know, I think it, it is kind of a miracle of God and really proof of the Bible's reliability that Israel is still around today. So we see, and basically he's going to talk a little bit about in the next few verses, this remnant of Israel, this remnant, by saying that God has not rejected his people. God has not rejected the people of Israel. That's number three in your outline. Paul says this in verse one and shows us basically four points in these following verses, one through six. Four-point proof of why God and how God has not rejected the people of Israel. First, in verse 1, it's Paul's testimony. Paul says, look at me. I'm proof that God has turned, that has not turned his back on his people. Verse 1 says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, Again, he's like, I'm a Jew, I'm saved. God, so that, that's proof that God hasn't rejected his people. Secondly, God foreknew them. God foreknew them. In verse 2, the beginning part, it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But it says it very plainly. 
in this idea of foreknowledge, really, you could read that verse, God did not reject what he selected. God did not reject what he selected. Next, we see that through Elijah's example, in verses two through four, um, we, we see another proof that God has not rejected his people because Paul refers back to the story in Elijah, verse three, two and three. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. So Elijah's here thinking he's all alone, all alone. This is hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe, even before the time of Jesus, the time of Paul. God answered him. God answered Elijah by saying, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And we don't have time to go into that whole context, but basically God there is showing there still is some people in Israel that he has kept for himself. And then we see the last point in verses five and six that there is a, a remnant that remains and it is now chosen by grace. And really it always has been chosen by God's grace. In verses five and six, it refers to this. So too, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So just as God chose Israel to be his people um, in the Old Testament, he chooses people today by his, his mercy and his grace. And Paul, over and over, had this strong emphasis on grace. You see that throughout all of his New Testament writings. Um, grace was truly amazing for Paul. So, so we see here, as we were getting close to wrapping up, God has not rejected Israel. Okay, we see that. So, so what now? What, what's the state of it? If Israel's heard the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they should have at least. They don't have any other excuses. God's a patient God waiting for them, has not rejected them. Where do we stand? And Paul basically ends this with verses 7 through 10 by basically explaining that some of Israel obtained salvation while the rest were hardened. So in verse 7, we see this idea begin to form and echo some, from some earlier passages. It says this, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the hardening of Israel, this idea again of them just being unable to respond to God because of, because of what they've done. Um, these verses kind of are saying that as the elect obtained what they were seeking, they, the elect were seeking after right standing before God, obtained by faith. So they, so they were doing it the right way. But the rest who pursued the goal through works and self-righteousness, they were hardened spiritually. And as Paul is saying, this has happened in the Old Testament. It's still happening in his day, and it even still happens in our day today. And, and he basically demonstrates this with the final, final couple verses we have today in verses 8 and, and 9 and 10. Verse 8, he's referring from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, kind of compiling this thing. It says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Just a very sobering reality of many, the, the state that many of the people of Israel found themselves in. So we see Moses and Isaiah kind of compiled quotes from them in that verse, and then David in verses 9 and 10. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So David here is praying for his enemies, praying against his enemies. And Paul is kind of translating that into kind of his day of saying, the Israelites have made themselves enemies of God and they're gonna 
really be up to this same fate if they don't turn from their wicked ways, they don't turn um, back to God. So we see here, Paul, basically, you know, all those Old Testament references that I know it can be a little overwhelming, um, as I said earlier, um, but hopefully you at least to get a little picture, okay? So you, you understand why Paul did some of those things in this passage. Um, and as we close there, I want to quickly go back over those three purposes um, of really what I th- some things I think we can gain from, from reading this and, and having a deeper understanding. The first, I'm going to start from the last one I mentioned, but is to have this renewed appreciation for the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament. Because as I said, I mean, a lot of us, maybe we, we, don't, we probably do spend more time in the New Testament studying, preaching, talking about, um, but the Old Testament has a lot of value. And that's what I think we can learn from Paul, especially in these verses we've read today. You know, basically, Paul is saying that the, the Old Testament has significant value to the believers of his day, which were after Christ. And so I think that is the same for us today. The law and the prophets that he's referring to, they all bear witness to the revelation of Jesus in some way. We can, we can really see that and through some of the prophecies. Words like sin and, the, and, and, and kind of concepts like the justice of God, without the Old Testament, we, we kind of can't understand them fully. And, and that really helps us understand the gospel in, in a greater way. So, so I want us to really have a greater appreciation uh, for the Old Testament. Um, Romans 15.4, I think, is, is a great verse that Paul uses to echo this, this idea. It says this, For whatever was written in former days, so in his days, so whatever was written in former, Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so I think that's a great lesson and takeaway that we can, we can take away from Paul in these verses. Secondly, I want us to hope we're reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises. God has been faithful to the nation of Israel, even when they were unfaithful to him over and over again. He, he is still um, going to save some of them, and, and, and his plan, they're, they're still his people. Um, and, and obviously he's opened up his family, and they aren't... They're not only his people. God has other, other people as well, Gentiles and non-Jews. But I think it's important for us when we, we kind of see passage like this where it's referencing back all these other prophecies, other things, that God has been faithful over the years and he is still faithful today. It, it helps us when we sing songs like we sang this morning. It is well with our soul. Just that peace that we can experience, just the trust that we have in God. Um, no matter what we go through. I know many of you are going, going through difficult times in life, even, even this morning, even in currently, and being reminded that God is always faithful to his promises, that all those promises in Romans 8 that, you know, that we've talked about in previous weeks, that, that we can really look forward to those being true, and we can trust that God is faithful. And then lastly, we want us to be challenged to have a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel. We, we saw Paul outline kind of the process, how God sends someone, how, how they preach, how they share the gospel, proclaim it, how, how the hearer hears, and then, they, and then the um, hearer responds by either belief or rejection. Belief or rejection, and if it's belief, then they're able to call on God. So, so especially during this season as we're ramping up towards Easter, I think we need to ask ourselves, so who is God sending me to? Who, who is God sending me to? Maybe it's, the, the person at your workplace, maybe it's the neighbor across the street, a family member, 
Um, but really, really ask yourself, uh, you know, if this is truly kind of the, the method that God has chosen in his sovereignty and his wisdom to, to uh, expand his kingdom, to, to allow the gospel to go forth by, by sending preachers. All of you can be preachers. All of us can be preachers. I know it's kind of scary. But we can preach the gospel um, to, to our friends and family who don't know Jesus. So let's pray as we finished this morning. God, thank you uh, for your word. And, and even in the parts that are hard to understand, God, thank you for really even just the resources that we have today, the access to um, different technologies where we can, we can study your word and, and really gain a deeper understanding and really understand uh, what the original author meant and how we can apply those things to our lives today. God, I pray that you would give us a, just a deep appreciation uh, for the Old Testament, just as Paul had, and, and really um, help us to just remember the, the patience that you have um, really shown all along um, and then that patience that you still show us today. Thank you for that. And give us that sense of urgency to, to go um, and really proclaim the good news of Jesus to those all around us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.